to the Web3 Prof Podcast. Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. I'm here with Lane LaFrance, who is co-founder of both CryptoKitties and Flow Blockchain. Thanks for being with me here today. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Okay, we're going to jump right into this. So, Lane, tell me, where did this start for you as far as, you know, the world of Web3? Let's call it Web3 or blockchain or whatever you want to call it, but let's let's go with kind of your journey uh, quickly in like a couple minutes, uh, where you started and kind of how you ended up where you are today. Sure. Sounds good. So I, I'm a product person at heart by nature. And so the, the journey into Web3 for me started with the product problem and experiencing the problem that Web3 set out to solve very firsthand. So in 2010, I was relocated from uh, Calgary, Alberta, where I grew up, to London, England for uh, my dad's work. I was in high school at the time mm. and was faced very firsthand what happens when you try and transfer value, identity, reputation, yourself across borders. And we were very fortunate to have that sort of the happy path of that play out for all kinds of reasons that are probably obvious if you see, yeah. Yeah. Was, um, you know, being from Canada, there was lots of advantage for us, but that doesn't play out the same for everyone. And it was very apparent how quickly that would be sort of a, a make or break for a person's future situation if they were if they were forced to relocate or or sort of change the economic situation they were in and so you're, you're kind of referring to the fact like if uh maybe someone who's immigrating from a developing country or a refugee were to do the same thing that you guys did it would have been a much much more difficult path if not impossible, or impossible yeah. yeah yeah absolutely and so while while we were there sort of among expats um people who'd been expatriated from their countries bitcoin a couple of years in, you know, sort of 2012, 2013, was, it, it was making its rounds in conversation. And my dad came home one day and he's like, have you heard about Bitcoin? I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, this is, this is a game changer. Like you can move value around the world and, and nobody can stop you. And, and, and it's accessible anywhere. Like that would have been absolutely game changing for us two years ago when we moved it, which is true. It would have been. And, um, because many things got lost, left behind, and, and that's just the the nature of sort of when you, you know, port yourself for opportunity, mm -hmm. you some things are lost, and so he had mentioned it to me, you know, very early on, and stuck in the back of my mind. Fast forward a couple of years, I'm doing an internship at a company called Axiom Zen, based out of Vancouver, and I am having lunch with Dieter, the CTO, and he pitches me on Bitcoin, and he's like, "So have you heard of Bitcoin?" <laughs> Like, I actually have heard of Bitcoin, <laughs> but tell me more. <laughs> but you hadn't like bought Bitcoin or anything like that at that point? Uh, so I had tried to, okay. and it was it was so hard. I fell in the camp of people who was like interested, excited, and um, it was also though a, a student and like didn't have a credit card of my own at the time. And or this is like, like that. And so this is like 2015? This would have been 2013. 2013. Yeah, okay. tw 2013. I tried to buy it, failed. Right. Um, and we talked to Dieter when? That would have been 2015. Okay. Yep. And so he pitches me on this idea that you can, that a group of people can agree that value exists without trusting any single person. Mm -hmm. And that, that felt far too important a technology to pass by, in my opinion, because I had spent a lot of time watching institutions disagree about, well, you know, if, if one person says this and somebody else says this, then actually we only take the person's answer who like we're best friends with. And right. that, that happens in, in all kinds of, I mean, it happens in social situations. It happens in uh, when the big players are deciding who's going to make money that year. And um, 
it, it was absolutely something I had seen unfold. And he was like, yeah, Bitcoin, you just, if peers believe that, that you have the money you say you do, then, then you do. And I was like, well, that sounds sick. <laughs> that sounds like really, really good news. And so he um, explained Bitcoin. I got pretty deep into it um, following his rendition of, I mean, at the, he was giving me like a very technical version of the white paper that particular day at lunch. Um, and I ended up moonlighting everything that I could read about crypto the summer of 2017 um, because someone told me that I should. And I and I believed them. They were like, crypto is not a very big space yet. You should just read everything, just know everything about crypto and then just do something with it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I was young. I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. So I did. I, I read absolutely everything I could find. I read every white paper. I went back to the basics of public private key cryptography because I just didn't know any better. I was studying finance at UBC when I was um, doing that internship. And when I was doing all of this studying, um, most of the moonlighting happened in Hong Kong where I was again affronted with what it feels like to not have financial resources mm. when you're in a place that's not your home. Yeah. I had been working there separately on a hardware product. And after the summer of 2017 and doing all this reading about like, that was really the summer of ICOs for Ethereum and people were really excited about what smart contracts were going to mean and how that, what Bitcoin had always felt a little bit early for me, but when smart contracts came out on Ethereum. I was like, oh man, we got something here. And so I was following all of the ICOs and the pitches and stuff. And um, in September called Axiom Zen back and said, hey, you know, I'd, I'd probably do something in crypto if you guys were up for it. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, actually, yeah, like we're, we're thinking of doing something. There's like a couple weird people sitting in the corner talking about <laughs> crypto. Like, do you want to join them? You can have your old job back, which is to be a product manager. Yeah. Um, and I... I got on basically the next flight and um, actually, sorry, the uh, Sam, Roham's brother, so Roham, the CEO of Dapper Labs, his brother, Sam, who has um, always been really involved in the company and everything, um, personally flew my offer letter to me in Hong Kong because he, he <laughs> happened to be in the area, which was a really nice touch. And I, I like said yes on the spot and flew back uh, a week later yeah. after reading all these white papers. And so I, I sit down, much like I'm sitting down with you right now. And Deet's like, so tell me what you know. <laughs> like, what have you learned since I told you about Bitcoin? And I proceeded to just like word vomit everything that I had learned over the summer. And he was satisfied that I could help him. So he told me that they were going to put cats on the blockchain. Him and Mac Flavel um, sit me down in this room and they're like, so we got to put cats on the blockchain. <laughs> and I didn't even hesitate. I was like 120% we have to put cats on the blockchain. This is what the industry has been waiting for. Like people have to, it has to feel concrete. It has to feel like something they can understand. Like we got to make this more tangible. Yes. Cats, internet, blockchain, we got to do it. And so were you, did you know, like when they pitched this idea that it was going to be like little cartoon pictures, like of cute little cats, like when you, is that what you were imagining right away? That's a great question. I, <clears throat> when they, so when we first said we're going to put cats on the blockchain, definitely images were like the, the first thing that came to mind. I don't know if they were necessarily the cartoon cats mm -hmm. that we were thinking of. I think what all of us had in our minds was just the brainchild of the fact that crypto needed something concrete and the internet loved cats. And we were just going to take those two things and like smash them together. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily like cat pictures, videos, cartoon. It, there was no specific creative medium Im immediately. There was actually a lot of discussion around whether or not we should focus much more on the genetics of the cats because we really wanted to emphasize that smart contracts were 
immutable and that the characteristics weren't going to change and genetics have there were some like nice parallels to explaining how genetics would not have change and evolve if you mm-hmm. know once set and so there was a brief period of time i think where we contemplated going pretty deep on genetics and maybe visualizing the genetics more but ultimately determined like no the internet what they love is cats and we're going to keep it on cats and it was clearly apparent after the first sort of brainstorming session that they needed to be very simple because the components needed to be interchangeable like there needed the it was clear that what was going to be cool was these cats evolving beyond sort of their first um rendition and and other people being able to create and build off of the cats and it's easiest to do that when there's sort of a standard of the shape and so this idea that the cat needed to be relatively standardized yeah that was obvious fairly early and so that made this sort of simple cute cartoon thing yeah feel like a really obvious choice but Gile the designer who led that gets all the credit for determining exactly what they were going to look like we just knew cats were going on the blockchain Yeah. yeah okay so then and then um you know so we've we've had um I mean, I've had a few uh, people that you worked with at that time on the podcast here, such as such as Deet. And, um, and you know, so from what I understand at that point, you guys launched this project and it breaks Ethereum and you're like, well, what are we going to do? The thing we want to do doesn't really work on the platform we want it to work on. And from what I understand, Flow Blockchain is kind of born out of that problem. Am I right? Yeah. So we, the, we launched CryptoKitties and... Um, a couple days pass and then we come in one morning and Mac is like, guys, the rocket ship success that we were talking about, it's like, it's happening. This, this is the thing that happens. And we were getting so many Facebook messages, so many tweets, like people were just inundating us with (laughs) requests of like, I can't breed my cat. Just like scrolls and scrolls and scrolls of user issues of their transaction fees are too high i don't know how to set up a metamask what's a seed phrase where why is my cat lost this thing is really cool but like i'm so confused about what's happening here i can't buy a cat um and so there was a war room effectively uh between roham deet and um a number of the smart contract engineers that had worked on it and they basically were sort of like what are we gonna gonna do yeah. and they come out of that meeting at maybe 6 30 when that same night and Deet and Rohm are looking at each other and they're like who who are we even gonna begin to task with like figuring out this problem and I'm sitting right there <laughs> at this point I'm still an intern and I'm just kind of looking at both of them and, they, and then they're both looking at me and they look back at each other and they look at me and we're all sort of like doing this little exchange they're like we caught our person and so um <laughs> That, that was the beginning of it. Roham just literally was like, we got to scale CryptoKitties, figure it out. Mm-hmm. And me and Deet just looked at each other and he and I had previously worked together on like you know, CryptoKitties and, and a number of different projects. And so we worked really well together and we mm-hmm. just looked at each other and we were like, all right, I guess we're scaling CryptoKitties. Like, let's figure it out. And so the next re- next day, it um, was the, the top of the whiteboard said uh, scaling CryptoKitties. And then there were three bullets on the side. Um, these were like the options of ways that we were going to scale CryptoKitties. Uh, there were state channels, side chains, and ETH alternatives. Because mm-hmm. those are those were pretty much the scaling options of the time. And yeah. so then we proceeded to, and you know, lots of subcategories and stuff. But that turned into a no less than two-month research expedition of uh, myself, Deet, and a number of other engineers reading every single white paper we could find, like just desperate for answers of how we were going to possibly scale this experience to more users and um 
every single one of those, everyone had taken the problem and done the same thing that Ethereum had done, which is assumed that everyone should do everything in the process. And that was an assumption that we decided to break. And they assumed that the security came from everyone doing everything in the process. And that mm -hmm. was also an assumption that we broke. And this, this was later sort of popularized in our separation of concerns paper, which said that actually you can execute and you can have some nodes that are specialized in this. Um, I'm, I'm going to take a business tack for this actually, because <laughs> I'm sure you've heard the technical version of it. And it was, it was a technical insight, but it's also quite obvious from a business perspective because it's basic specialization and mm -hmm. it's, um, yeah, it, it was really just a matter of like, these people are good at doing this thing and these people are good at doing this thing. And as long as we can make sure that they both keep each other in check, we can use the benefits of specializing both of them, which in one case is these guys do the hard, fast work and these guys do the hard security safety work and then let them come together and make the whole thing greater than the sum of its parts. Right. And so that um, wasn't an obvious assumption to break at the time because the entire idea of decentralization was like, well, everybody has to be able to participate. Everyone has to be able to check it. And we still very firmly believe that it's absolutely critical that anyone can send a transaction. Anyone's able to check it, but you don't need, um, you don't need every single person following along with every single element of the state of the chain in order to get the same security guarantees mm. about verifiability, authenticity. Yeah. Um, and so giving ourselves a little bit of flexibility about like, well, actually, is it critical that everyone does every single thing or is it critical that everyone has cryptographic certainty that when they access that thing, it's what it's really meant to be. Right. And so um, that that sort of blew the problem space wide open and, and it was in the breaking of those assumptions that Float was born. So it wasn't, it wasn't born just of looking at white papers and being okay. like, these aren't that cool. It was looking at them and being like, man, like they're all gonna have the same bottleneck. Like if every single person's doing every single thing, mm -hmm it doesn't really matter how you slice, dice, compact, proof, whatever. Like, you're just going to be stuck with this core problem of being limited by the slowest person for a task they're not suited. And so that sort of divi division of tasks and specialization of tasks was that, to me, really burst flow. Because it wasn't just that we didn't find answers in white papers. It was this key insight that, indeed, the problem could be attacked a different way without compromising security or mm. performance. Yeah, okay. And then, then Flow was born, but it was actually at the time called something very different. And what so, was it called? I've it, never heard that before. It uh, was code. Well, it had a code name that I'm probably not allowed to say, but then <laughs> then it had a more official name, which was Bamboo. Um, and Bamboo was sort of uh, sustainable, organic public infrastructure. And we liked that. Um, yeah. We liked that ethos for a very long time, but uh, Flow ultimately became the name. Was so. it was it ever publicly called Bamboo, or that was just an internal thing at the time? It was. Uh, there were early early backers who would have seen the name Bamboo, definitely. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay, so when we look at uh, a topic that I often hear about in kind of blockchain conversations is this idea of composability. So what is composability and why why is that a relevant aspect of blockchain that people are trying to solve i'm so glad you asked <laughs> composability is my very favorite part so um composability is 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 actually a couple of things and there's a technical and a social aspect to composability and at both of those there's three layers um it we, yeah we can we call them layers of composability so the what we're referring to when we talk about technical composability is the ability for 
code to add on to other code reliably, basically. And that's kind of uniquely made possible by public blockchains and the fact that they support standards. So similar to when you're driving down the road and you're in your car, you you know that highways in Canada, for example, are graded such that the speed limit will let you go to that real speed limit. And, and when you turn the corner, you're not going to go like flying off the side. Right. And that's because it's a standard. It's an engineering, it's a civil engineering standard. And we have those in real world engineering all the time, right? Like most things that you deal with have been relatively standardized when you go to a mechanic to change out parts in your car. All of that has been standardized for the purpose of like just easy service, exchangeability, more consumer choice, that sort of thing. And so mm -hmm. composability is sort of like the software equivalent of that standardization. It just says when you are writing code and when you're shipping so software applications that are going to a really large group of people, you want them to be robust and to use the best standards such that you're sort of benefiting from what other people have decided is like the safety standard in the car example. And you're giving users the uh, optionality of standardizing tires, for mm -hmm. example, when mm -hmm. you're like shopping for tires for your car. Yeah. And so technical composability is just saying that we now have a way to write code such that it behaves a lot more like what you would expect in the physical world. It, it's standardized and it's um, predictable in both how it will work for you as an input and what it'll provide you as an output in the, in the term of uh, service. Okay. So some code is, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was, I was gonna say, well, how does that play out or why does that actually matter to, I don't know, the everyday user of blockchain? Great question. So it helps them, in, a, in the context of Ethereum, we saw composability play out a ton in the world of DeFi. That was the, it, it sort of gave a liquidity standard uh, effectively. So fungible tokens all around <clears throat> Ethereum were standard to be used on exchanges, M&M, AMMs, sorry, um, automated market makers, mm -hmm. uh, DEXs, decentralized exchanges. And so in <clears throat> the context of DeFi, it was the fact that those standards existed, um, fungible tokens, and that they were usable on marketplaces, like the marketplaces were set up to manage fungible tokens and in some cases non-fungible tokens repeatedly. And so those, the consumer choice that was made possible by teams basically establishing support for one standard, ERC-20, meant that they could also support lots and lots of other tokens um and there, there's definitely devil in the details here like there's still some manual things that happen but broadly those tokens were really easily exchangeable for users in the ecosystem and so the benefit was like just choice they got right. so many options they knew there was a level of predictability that as long as they were using something that was erc20 compatible the security standards were going to work the way they expected the user experience was going to be the way that they expected and so um <clears throat> sorry that's on ethereum and so on on flow why we care about composability is definitely that it's the <clears throat> liquidity standardization that you get from having uh, one token type that people are largely dealing with if i look at kind of um, me as a blockchain user okay i understand how that's important when it comes to crypto uh, currencies coins or tokens what about the relationship between um, composability and nfts how is that how is that important or is that an irrelevant part of this and by your excitement i feel like it seems like there must be some relevance to composability in nfts uh yeah so so much relevance so um composability in nfts is well, so the example that we're really excited about on flow right now is with doodles so 
Doodles is a, they make the avatars and, and you can add accessories to your avatar and stuff. And that, the fact that the avatar is standard enough that the accessory can be added on top of it and that the person can evolve in their expression to both have accessories and possibly go into like some in-game world, that's all considered part of composability. So it's an ability to extend the experience beyond just what the original avatar is. It's it's the extension of having more hats, more clothes, more places that the avatar can go. More socks. I actually own some socks. More socks, exactly. And it seems trivial, but this your our lives are composable. Like our our online our lives are increasingly both online and offline and composability is the thing that would let you have the equivalent of your house in web3 because mm-hmm. your house is composed of your house and all the stuff in it and all the people who come in in and out of the doors and the ability for those people who are coming from different dapps or projects or you know countries like they're effectively it's like having visitors in your home mm-hmm. the fact that they are standard means that they can experience your house they can see your nfts they can see your stuff they can right. show up and and that's all very much like the physical world, you know, like the doors are the same shape for humans, <laughs> no matter where you go. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, composability for NFTs is, is the extension of creative capacity in a sense, because it takes maybe just one NFT. And it, so this is a technical part of composability. It takes the core thing and opens it up to be evolved, extended, added to by developers or other dApps such that it's more interesting for the users and the experience extends beyond the original one. So yeah. in the case of Doodles, it's um, like wor- maybe world building, fashion, accessories. In the case of CryptoKitties, it was taking the what started as the core cat experience and putting it into a race maybe. There was something called Kitty Races, um, putting a hat on it. <clears throat> Sorry. There was something called Kitty Hats and that, mm-hmm. much like the Doodles example, was putting hats on cats. And so... So, the, so can I... Uh, as an individual, create some type of addition to the Doodles collection, like maybe I want to make pants. Mm-hmm. Can I make pants that could effectively kind of be forced into the community because of composability? Do you know what I mean? You definitely can. So I don't know exactly what Doodles plans are at the. So I don't want to speak to exactly I, I, what maybe, they'll let you do. But technically, yeah. I don't mean. Yeah, I don't. I don't mean specifically Doodles, but yeah, generally speaking, is that the idea? Exactly, and that's the social part of composability. So the really neat part is that when when things are able to be composed on and, and standards built on public blockchain, so like an NFT on Flow, it it means that anybody else can also append, add, make additions to that NFT in ways that like, yeah, adding pants, adding different color pants, adding socks, adding a cane, putting it on top of a mountain. Those are things that are made possible for the community to add on to. And so it's not just a technical, composability is not only a technical innovation, it's really more of a social one because what it's saying is that rather than competing between projects, there's this opportunity and indeed benefit to collaborate. So people coming into projects and adding pants rather than creating a whole new avatar with pants is net positive both for the developer because it means they just get to tap into the ecosystem and net net positive for the ecosystem because you're adding value to something they already own. And so rather than like a new project with pants competing, you get this very, um, this very compelling offering where there's this social incentive for people Mm. to, collaboratively create on top of other compositions rather than compete and make alternative projects if the project they are normally spending time on lacks the features that they're interested in. And that's sort of, that's where the very exciting compounding growth and network effects start to come into play. So can a, 
an NFT project like Doodle stop people from doing this? Can they make it not composable? Or is it is it kind of enter a space of once composability is part of this, it's free game, people can kind of add as they please? So this is why we talk about it in layers, because there is there are certainly layers. So the first layer of composability is that you have a thing that's standardized and, well, I, don't let me speak about this canonically. I don't think anyone's agreed to this. But how I think about composability is you start with a thing and you can extend it and add something on top of it. Mm -hmm. And you can possibly take that thing that's been extended and also add it to another right. thing. Right. And so the thing that a developer would have a very hard time stopping you from doing is adding something to something that you already own, especially on Flow, because you own the asset. And if you want to append something else on top of it, it's it's always just an NFT. Yeah. And so technically there's there's very little they can do to stop you but practically often people are only dealing with the dApps through the interface that the brand is setting up for them and so it certainly could be the case that a brand excludes compositions on their work in an effort to maintain brand value for example so even though technically you would be able to create everything that you want to mm -hmm. it might it might practically be the case that the developer actively or the brand filters out some of the compositions if they feel like they don't they don't yeah. best represent the brand so that it's not a um there isn't an explicit blocking action mm -hmm. but there is a filtering out and yeah. some i mean if if they were to specifically make a, an item that wasn't compatible with a standard then they would both exclude themselves from this ecosystem and they would effectively make it impossible yeah. so it is possible to create things that aren't composable uh, and this is a conversation we have with folks especially IP partners a lot because they're kind of like, well, you know, we heard about that Winnie the Pooh thing and like, right. it's going to be um, not a super relevant or super timely example, but recently uh, in like the last two years or so, Pooh Bears, uh, have you heard about this? No, uh, Pooh Bears. Pooh Bears, the, so, uh, Winnie, Winnie the, the Pooh. Pooh. Yeah, like the actual, the, the, uh, the actual Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, actual okay. Winnie the Pooh, uh, which was created by Milne in like the early 20th century okay the um licensing ran out for it it's now under public domain mm -hmm. as i think about two years ago and um that resulted in someone making a movie called uh blood and honey i think it's, it's what it's called <laughs> and it's a horror take okay. on pooh bear right. and so an example of like a creative work that people have extended in a way that the brand maybe otherwise wouldn't have but they're able to because it's now under free domain and so this has nothing to do with blockchain or crypto this is just a movie this is just a movie yeah. this is just an example of, yeah. of what happens when you let the community yeah. evolve in a brand sure and i'm mentioning it because it's it's a fair concern for some brands that they're like well you know we don't know what people are going to do but the challenge and um area of innovation for them is everywhere that there's things you don't like there's about a dozen things you do like and yeah. more importantly that your customers like okay. and so composability definitely comes with areas of uh inquiry for a lot of folks but it's the ability to tap into community creation and the ability to channel that creative energy and have it contribute to your brand's ecosystem will f i think will far outweigh the costs of even like the most obscure sort of uses of the brand like i this winnie the pooh example that i'm giving yeah. you and so um that, you know even though it's technically they may be able to stop it i think composability is the kind of thing that people will very quickly mm -hmm. see the benefit of because it will It'll so quickly enrich the user's experience. It'll increase the engagement of the people who are building on top of the product and are excited to see their own success reflected in it. And ultimately that will, 
you know, we talk a lot about 10xing user experience. Like certainly that will 10x user experience because the access to resources and innovation will far exceed that which is available when a brand is solely responsible for cr- driving the entirety of the user experience. So is so compo- sounds like composability currently exists. Are we at a like, you know, we hope composability is going to go to 10, but we're only at a one at this point. We're still exploring and building or is is full composability available to us now? And we're just waiting for builders to take advantage of what is already created as a standard. It's so early. So we do, we definitely concretely have examples of composability that are very compelling. There's good early indicators here that this is a really compelling and interesting business model mm-hmm. that could, I, I used the term earlier. That's okay. Um, I used the term earlier, collaborate rather than compete. That to me is a very core insight about what's possible with composability. And there's a lot of, I mean, as you probably know, we're spending time around students. There's a lot of talk about what the relationship is between institutions and organizations. Mm-hmm. And so definitely it's early days for composability, both technically and socially. But both technically and socially, we're seeing early indications that this is really compelling. I wouldn't even call it at a one. I think it's at like a point one. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll know that that's true when people write into this podcast and they're like, I don't agree with Lane. She said composability is X and I think it's Y because we're, <laughs> we're like absolutely still having those conversations right. about composability in the industry. Like I think we're all duking out what exactly is this going to mean and what's it going to enable. And I look forward to hearing from who's yes. going to yell about it. But the um, full, the, the full reach of composability is it, it it could take many decades to see okay. like the end of of what's possible when you enable community collaboration on top of existing IP and brands. So what's a, what right now is our roadblocks? What how do we get to the next thing? The biggest roadblocks are not technical; they are social. It is a The mindset, so typically businesses, and, and this is like the thing you're taught in business school, right? The, the way to make money is, is, you know, roughly you're like, you're either efficiency, you're getting like really great economies of scale and you're going to make a bunch of money that way, or you're going to corner a resource that nobody else has. And then you're going to like extract monopoly profits on it and you know, other variations of that. But largely that's like the way people are taught that the economy works and that's how you make money and that's how mm-hmm. business functions and, you know, life goes on. Yeah. And this totally flies in the face of that composability rejects the idea that there is benefit it it rejects the idea that more is to be gained from control it instead says more is to be gained the more the more open you make it the more Mm -hmm. access you give the more freedom you let people innovate and evolve and create on top of something the better it will be and and critically in the world of a public blockchain that's designed like flow practically implementing what it would mean for people to have those creations and value accrue back to the original creator is technically possible. And so it is it is in their economic best interest to allow the, the innovation, the creativity, but it is a totally different mindset to what you're used to. It, it very much requires business owners, entrepreneurs, people who are normally in the position of saying, I'm going to grab this and keep it for myself and extract mm-hmm. profit that way. It instead challenges them to say what will happen if you let go of control and you inspire the people in your ecosystem to give as much as they get and it it really challenges brands to have this reciprocal relationship with their communities and the customers that they serve and i think that's what 
all of us are demanding is certainly what I'm demanding as a customer. I, I want to see that reciprocity. I want to see the brands care about the things that are important to me and, and to the communities that they serve. But that really is the challenge, like getting the sort of business zeitgeist to a place where people are thinking about more profit coming from tapping into the creative commons, basically, Mm -hmm. (laughs) rather than trying to like lock down and control things that are entirely of their innovation. That to me is, is mostly the challenge that we are facing today. But there are, you know, as we see new generations enter the workforce, as we see the especially creative economy really take off and user generated content on social drive more and more of the conversation around about where value lives. It'll become a more obvious answer. I I think it'll, it'll really challenge people to think about the ways that Mm. they're making money because absolutely right now you are making money based or at least social platforms are largely making money based on the eyeballs and attention that they garner. And this is a very compelling way to get people more engaged in, in the content. And so I think it's interesting because it, it, it takes, I think a lot of people look at crypto and Web3 and NFTs as just like profiteering. We're just like flipping things and we're just trying to make as much money as possible as quickly as possible and not adding any value to society. And, and you know, what is the really what is really the point of this? Whereas what you're talking about with this principle of composability, it's like, well, how can we work together to add value to a community together so we all grow up together, mm-hmm. which is um, which is interesting because you know, Web3, a lot of it is, is about free markets and allowing people to make independent decisions and being free from intermediaries and, and all of these really important values. And then you kind of add this layer on top and you're like, wow, well, all these things are so important. And then we can actually do that together and add real value to society um, by it's like, you know, when two brands partner with each other, but this is like all brands partnering with each other or tons of brands partnering with each other to build something really interesting. It, exactly. It, it's it opens up the opportunity for anybody to be in a JV, a, a relatively risk, sorry, JV being joint venture. Yeah. Um, it, because it's a relatively riskless enterprise. Like they can, you can have a developer build on top of your IP. If it totally flops, you never show it to your users, mm-hmm. whatever. If it doesn't flop, you have this incredible new experience yeah. for your customers yeah. and and you're getting paid for it. Your customers are loving it. And you have this this new effectively like independent team specifically dedicated to continuing to make your customers happy in this very specific way. Right. And, um, yeah, absolutely. There is net new value creation there. So where do you think, um, you, where do you think we're going to see this first happen maybe in the mass markets beyond kind of the small crypto community right now that is experiencing this in small ways? Is this going to be through, you know, some NFT project partnering with a video game and you can transport your assets or your, um, you know, you know, whatever, I don't know, whatever kind of assets you have in the game. Is that, is that where this is going to go? Or where do you see kind of the first steps really happening to the mass market? I think we will probably see it first in, I'm really hoping to see an example in fashion um, and in avatar accessories, as we were alluding to earlier, because we do need to make this concrete for people. Composability is still quite early. And Mm -hmm. so they're, I mean, I couldn't possibly conceive of like the first killer application of composability because it'll be hopefully someone tapping into a really great IP and just like 10xing the user experience. Right. But the the most obvious example for composability really is that fashion one because it's an it's an easy way for people to understand that like, yeah, you compose an outfit. Like there's obviously a couple different items in an outfit. 
And yep. the idea that you would trade them makes a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. And it's it's very net positive for fashion because fashion absolutely is an expression of identity and, mm -hmm. and preferences and all of those things. But we've seen the cost of fast fashion in the world, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and, it, and it's been challenging. And it's not the I'm not saying that people should not buy clothes. Of course, we need to buy clothes. <laughs> but the clothes that we buy to live our lives and the clothes we buy to express our preferences, some of those might live online. The right. preference ones might be better suited to online because there's so many more. Uh, a couple of years ago, we released something called Iridescence with um, a scene called Fabricant. And it was a uh, like a sheer dress. It looks, so it's it's totally digitally rendered. Um, and it it just you wouldn't you would never be able to create it in the real world but people are buying it for digital fashion because you can you can create mm -hmm. something like that and it's an opportunity to express yourself that you wouldn't get in the physical world and yeah. so and also like you know fashion designers wanting to have avenues to expose their work and having sort of models which in this case are avatars that are able to showcase it like it really brings the cost of sure. distribution down for fashion designers yeah. and it's a very lightweight way for people to experience this this like changing of preferences and yeah. and seeing what happens when someone creates something quite fringy because it's kind of the equivalent of like a graphic t-shirt you know something that's like trendy and quick and yeah. and you just put it on really yeah. fast so i i imagine or i hope that we'll see some composability yeah. stuff in fashion because there seems like lots of low-hanging fruit there um i'm also really hoping to see people compose on some of the uh well, no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say, um, but <laughs> well, that'll be for yeah, next time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should do a whole part two on like the, 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 the it going? wide web of where composability is going. Yeah. Okay. No, that's really good. I think this has been such a, an interesting conversation. I don't think that co composability is a commonly spoken about topic within the wider web three community, but it seems like it really is an important part of, um, of why blockchain technology matters and so i think it's been really great to get a, get an understanding uh some of it a bit technically and also some of it from a practical perspective and how this would play out kind of in our daily lives so this has been super helpful i really appreciate uh, you being with me lane thanks so much for having me it yeah composability definitely it could be one of the killer features of mm. the world of web3 so yeah. really happy to be starting the conversation about it awesome thank you thank you yeah.